Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. And this is the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. Okay, Lauren, so this episode is called Taming the Taste for Blood. Is this about ticks again? Not ticks, but another blood-feeding, disease-spreading insect, the mosquito. And as the title suggests, we're talking about how and why mosquitoes have developed this taste for human blood. I'm joined by Leslie Vosshall of Rockefeller University to discuss two articles from her group working to unravel the mysterious biology of how mosquitoes are attracted to humans. They're specially designed appendages for drinking floral nectar and for drinking blood, and the critical differences between male mosquitoes and female mosquitoes. And of course, we talk about why this all matters for controlling the spread of the deadly pathogens transmitted by the mosquito. Okay, mosquitoes, by all measures, the world's most deadly animal. It kills more humans than any other animal, including humans. So because the females of the deadliest species have to feed on blood to be able to be reproductively active, as they're doing this incredibly important behavior for them, they are basically allowing parasites and viruses to hitchhike along with their food preferences, right? So they grab a blood meal from an infected person. It's delicious. They digest it. They turn it into eggs. Then they get hungry again. Meanwhile, the parasite or the virus has had a great time replicating in the mosquito. She goes to bite the next person and infects them. And so because mosquitoes can live for a long time and they take lots of blood meals, they bite lots of people in the life of an individual female Female mosquitoes of the Anopheles species kill about a half a million people a year. The species we study, Aedes aegypti, infects about 400 million people a year with dengue, chikungunya, yellow fever, Zika. So this whole rogues gallery of viruses. Those viruses are less lethal, so they kill 25,000 people a year, still a lot of people but it's the debilitating illnesses that are really the burden of Aedes aegypti. So that's it, the world's tiniest, deadliest creature. Yeah, it's always funny. You'd think like the world's deadliest creatures, like great white sharks, but it's, or, you know, other humans and it's not, it's mosquitoes. So why is it so difficult to get mosquitoes and mosquito-borne diseases under control? That's a great question. And it's been a question that humans have been asking since there have been humans. So as far back as recorded history, people have been dying from vector-borne diseases. So have we made any progress? No, we didn't have cell phones when King Tut was alive. We have cell phones now, but the mortality for mosquito-borne diseases is unchanged over the millennia. So why is it so hard? The pathogens they carry are very difficult to build vaccines against, with the exception of yellow fever. But malaria, there's been many attempts over the last century to find a way to make a vaccine against malaria, and the pathogen is a shapeshifter, can't be vaccinated. So a lot of the fight is focused on the mosquito. How do we get the mosquitoes to either stop being alive or to stop biting people? And you look again through history, people have been anointing themselves with smelly, toxic chemicals to make them stop bite us. There have been poison, right? The idea in modern time when the chemical industry was born Let's come up with insecticides that just kill them all. That works for a while, but then you just need a few percent that are resistant and then they come back. Today, the new idea is let's have the mosquitoes kill each other by having them carry death genes that they will, as the males mate with their brides out in the wild, they will carry the death genes and then the mosquitoes will eradicate themselves. So far, not good. So far, nothing has worked. It works for a while and then they come back. 
because life wants to live. Mosquitoes want to live. They need blood to live. And it's an almost impossible problem to break that chain of transmission. That fact that the mortality rate between mosquito-borne diseases in King Tut's time versus now is really mind-boggling. So one of the aspects of mosquito biology that your lab studies is sexual dimorphism. So this is the difference between males and females of the same species. Why is this important to understand these differences, and particularly when it comes to thinking about vector control for mosquitoes? Something that most scientists and almost all members of the general public don't know is that only females bite. So in the gendering of language, it's actually appropriate to say only she bites. And so we in the whole field has been fascinated about how do you make two animals of two different sexes that are so totally different? Males and females look different, but the whole interest and drive to bite people only exists in the female. And moreover, if you look at the head of the female, only females have this sharp syringe-like appendage that can puncture the skin. So that sexual dimorphism, males don't want to hunt people and they can't bite them. Females desperately want to hunt people and they're very good at biting them. It's really at the core of the sexual behavior part of my lab. And then, so only the females feed on blood, which means that they're the only ones that transmit disease. And since they require blood for feeding, you know, if we could stop that, that's like a twofer because not only are you not having the biting and the feeding and the passing of the pathogens, but if they aren't developing their eggs properly, then you're disrupting their genetic transmission, the transmission of the species. Yes. And that's a point that we should emphasize that I haven't emphasized before. So when a female mosquito bites you, it's not that she's hungry. It's not she's feeling like, oh, I didn't have breakfast. Let me have like a croissant. She's doing it because she needs blood to produce eggs. So every blood meal that she takes from a person, she will turn into 50 male eggs and 50 female eggs, roughly. So without the blood meal, you're right, no baby mosquitoes. Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's kind of the big picture. So let's start by discussing the results of the article, Sensory Discrimination of Blood and Floral Nectar by 80s Egyptes Mosquitoes, published in Neuron. And I found the introduction to this paper really fascinating because it shifted my perspective on the sense of taste from the human experience of taste, which is preference and pleasure and reward or, you know, disliking the taste of something to a more basic one, which is discriminating food sources with different nutritional value. So how do you think about the importance of taste when it comes to mosquito feeding? So in the mosquito, as we have been discussing, blood is for babies. Sugar does not lead to babies. And there's another nuance that mosquitoes are really funny. They have essentially two tongues, right? There's a blood tongue and then a sugar tongue. So at the periphery, they have different sensory organs. They also have two different stomachs, essentially. So they have something called the crop, where sugar will go. And then they have something called the midgut, which is where the blood will go. So there's all these fail-safes in place that when the female tastes blood, that she directs it to the part of her digestive system where it can be used to make eggs. Whereas if she tastes sugar with this other alternative tongue called a labium, she directs that sugar to the crop. And it's so critical that she doesn't fill up her midgut with sugar because it completely messes with the midgut's ability to take protein and pump it into eggs. I would say that humans have a version of this. We have one tongue and one stomach but there is a widely acknowledged and widely studied idea of stimulus-specific satiety 
which means basically like you can have a huge steak, but then still be hungry for dessert, right? So you have these cravings that are nutrient specific. This is why Gatorade is a billion dollar industry because when people are running, they have an incredible, incredible hunger for salt. And so that's why these salty drinks are important. So we have these different cravings for sure that relate to our biology, but we don't have two tongues or three tongues or five tongues. We got one tongue and one stomach. Right, right, right. So in mosquitoes, males always want to feed from flowers. They don't have this desire to drink blood, but the females have these different nutritional requirements and that's kind of encoded through their sense of taste. They know that the flour has that sugar taste and that it gets routed through a different part of their digestive system, whereas the blood goes through their other digestive system and helps with the production of their eggs. Flowers and humans are very different food sources. So how have females evolved to be able to feed from both? So one important thing that I didn't mention, although the mosquito is the world's most dangerous animal, there are thousands of species of mosquitoes that are perfectly benign and they only feed on plants. It's only a handful, a few dozen species that are spreading the malaria pathogen and these viruses. So it's a kind of an overall question about how did this evolve, where you have all of these kind of peaceful vegetarian mosquitoes and then these blood-hungry mosquitoes. If you look at the syringe organ that my student Veronica Jovet studied, you see that the vegetarian mosquitoes don't have that sexually dimorphic stylet. So the blood-feeding syringe looks the same in males and in females. If you look at the blood-feeding animals, that's where you start to see that there's a female syringe and a male syringe. So at some point along the march of evolution, something happened to reprogram this, what is basically like a drinking straw in the male where he can drink up nectar it's been weaponized in the female. So she uses that drinking tube also to drink sugar, but it's really only tasting blood. So we don't have the answer. I wasn't there at the dawn of evolutionary time, but it does seem like a big step was to make the sensory syringe actually sexually dimorphic. Mm -hmm. So this paper is studying how that syringe, how that sense of taste encodes discrimination between blood and floral nectar. So what would you say the main results from this paper are? The main result is that the way that the stylet does it is the stylet number one is insensitive to sugar. So if you dip a mosquito stylet into a big cup of sugar, stylet doesn't detect anything. So that's a way that if the stylet is basically contacting sugar, it will not trigger the animal to drink. So that's a great kind of safety. It's like a kill switch. So can't sense sugar. But what's very cool is that you know that when you go to the doctor and you get your blood tested, there's a little bit of sugar in your blood. That's glucose, right? It's like the basis of something that you have to keep your blood sugar in range. Otherwise you're a diabetic. So that poses a problem for the mosquito because glucose is a good thing to know because it tells you that you're in blood, but you don't want to activate the drinking just of glucose because then you'll fill up your midgut with sugar. So what the stylet has done that's ingenious is that there's a set of cells, nerve cells in the stylet that only pay attention to glucose when glucose is kind of in a mixture with other stuff that's in blood. So salt and bicarbonate. And so the stylet has figured out glucose is okay, but only if the other blood stuff is there because a plant does not mix sodium bicarbonate and sodium chloride into its nectar. So that's, in a nutshell, it is the paper. 
the female packs her stylet, syringe-like stylet with neurons that are tuned to blood and that there's a fail-safe that anytime that the animal encounters glucose, unless there's other blood components there, she won't drink. And that will prevent this mix-up where she fills her makeup with sugar because that's it. Then at that cycle, she won't produce any eggs. So it's a really important thing to get right. Right, right. Whereas the male can eat sugar, you know, he doesn't need to have this discriminatory ability. The female, the female stylet, this needle that's responsible for drinking the blood can drink floral nectar or it can drink blood, but it needs to know which it's drinking so that it sends that food source to the right digestive tract. And this work is really elegantly shows how it's able to taste the blood and then how that triggers that response. So we discussed how the females are able to discriminate between nectar and blood, but another key sensory ability that they have that males lack is the attraction to humans. So in the second paper that I want to discuss with you called Fruitless Mutant Male Mosquitoes Gain Attraction to Human Odor, which was published in eLife, you investigate the genes that are involved in this sexually dimorphic attraction to humans. So what did you find in that paper? So we were looking for what makes females attracted to people and what makes males be indifferent to people. In Drosophila, there's a gene called fruitless. It's called fruitless because the males that lack this gene have no interest in finding and mating with females. So everything about their courtship ritual is perturbed. And we know that it's the major switch, the major regulator of whether you are a male fly and you are attracted to females and court them, or whether you're a female fly and you don't court other females. So now the nuance with mosquitoes is that mosquitoes that spread diseases to humans have evolved a real love for us. So they love how we smell. They are very excited by the carbon dioxide that we exhale. And then it's all heated. So it's like there's a little heater that spreads the stuff everywhere. So we're just walking around advertising our presence. And so females are extremely sensitive to each of these cues alone. And then when you start mixing the cues together, you get this huge explosive synergism where a little whiff of CO2 and body odor massively attracts them. Males don't care about any of that stuff. So the big question that Nippon Basra asked is what happens if I knock out the fruitless gene in the mosquito? And then we ask, how does that affect the male mosquito's sex life? Does it change how they feel about humans? So there's a lot of things that the males do that's normal. So if you give them water or sugar or blood, they act just like their brothers. So the mutant males love the taste of sugar. They're as unexcited by the taste of blood as their brothers. But fruitless for sure, if a male does not have fruitless, his sex life is in ruins, so he's not able to inseminate females. The most astonishing thing in this paper, which is incredible, it's like the jackpot that every scientist looks for in their life, is that for the first time ever, Nippon was able to make males that are attracted to people. That's never been done before. So he put the smell of a human in one of our behavioral assays. The males got up, flew toward the human. They're Brothers who had a perfectly functional form of the fruitless protein didn't get up and fly toward the human. So it's this dream gain of function, meaning that the regular males don't care about people. 
these mutants where you've taken away one of the 15,000 genes in the mosquito, all of a sudden they wake up and they like people. Do you think that's such a dream result because it's so much harder to get a gain of function? Is that the basis of it or is there an extra wrinkle that I didn't appreciate? That is the basis of the excitement. It's very easy to break something. Like I could start knocking genes out of whatever animal and it would be like, oh, it doesn't get up. Oh, it looks sleepy. It looks sick. That does not mean that that's the gene for sickness. It's just, you've just broken the animal in an uninteresting way. So the key result here is that you're able to induce a behavior that's never been seen on earth before. Now the mosquitoes are getting up, excited, actively flying toward people. And so then you can't say like, oh, the mosquito's just sick, right? Breaking a behavior is relatively straightforward. It can give you all sorts of nightmare artifacts. But if you make a behavior that doesn't exist, you're really onto something. Yeah, so we knew from previous work in fruit flies that fruitless is a gene that's involved in regulating these sex-specific behaviors. But in mosquitoes, it has this additional role of also controlling the sex-specific attraction to humans. What is your thinking about how this is encoded? How do you think about turning on a behavior? Right. So how do you all of a sudden make a male that finds humans really alluring by just taking away one gene? We needed to do one more experiment that I haven't explained, which is the first experiment where we saw the males getting up and flying toward people. That was an actual live human. There was a live human at the end of a tube that was the bait and the male mosquitoes flew toward that human. That's exciting. The problem with that experiment is that all of the things I mentioned, the carbon dioxide, the heat, and the odor are all there. So before we could really understand what was going on with those males, we needed to isolate each of those individual cues to figure out, are the fruitless mutant males just really excited about body heat, or is it about body odor or both? And so the real kicker experiment here was people in the lab wear nylon stockings. Like we go to the pharmacy at the corner buy a bunch of knee-high stockings, cut the toes off, and then people wear the stockings on their forearms for six hours. During that six hours, just their natural body odor and the bacteria that produce it soak in to these little nylon stockings. Then we cut those little stockings into little squares of smelly human-scented stockings, put them in the assay, and then ask what happens. So females love, they love the scent of those stockings. Regular males could not care less. Fruitless mutant males fly toward those stockings. So that was the clincher that whatever is happening in the brain of the fruitless male is affecting the sense of smell. The question that you want to know is how? And the answer is we have absolutely no idea. Future research. <laughs> and we could, I mean, I could speculate endlessly. So we know that fruitless is expressed in the antenna that senses smells. We have some idea that the male and the female olfactory system are different, but there's many, many, many different ideas about how those males are attracted to human smell. I think the idea of turning on a behavior that wasn't expressed before, there's just something so fascinating about it. So I'm going to segue this discussion of the role of fruitless and this surprising result that males have this kind of latent ability that can be turned on to make them attracted to human body odor into the broader discussion of the implications of these papers. So obviously this is a very cool result, but it's kind of the opposite of what we would ideally want, which would be to make females less attracted to humans. This is making males attracted to humans. So is there a way that this research kind of informs the reverse scenario? Sure. Understanding the mechanism is a really important thing for us to figure out. But I think that there is something profound about 
is there a male brain? And I think that what this study shows and that what we increasingly appreciate in the fly is that the ground plan is female. So the world starts as female. And then to be able to have a male specific behavior, you basically have to build on top of that foundation. And so what we've done by taking away fruitless is we've revealed like the underlying ground plan, the underlying foundation is female. Mm. I think that fundamentally, the discovery that we've made with the Nippon Buzzra paper is the basic biology of how do you sculpt a male brain on the foundation of the female brain that came first. The Jovet paper may have some more immediate applications once we figured out what mosquitoes like and don't like in blood. One idea that we've been kicking around, which is kind of psychedelic, is that if we could figure out some substance that would activate the female stylet neurons really potently, that they really hated, that would make them remove their stylet and just fly away and stay away from us, that would stop biting. Now, you would still get the itchy welt because they will have punctured your skin, but you wouldn't get the virus or the pathogen because it takes some time for to start pumping. So now the only catch is you would have to take that pill. So you, everybody would take a pill every morning that gets into your blood. That is a substance that mosquitoes hate. But I think, although that's a wild psychedelic idea, I think that there's no reason it couldn't work. Yeah, if you know what tastes good and what tastes bad, then you can figure out how to kind of weaponize that because we don't want to eat things that taste bad. You know, neither do mosquitoes. Second example, which we're right in the middle of, which is something I'm really excited about is If female mosquitoes were not hungry for human blood, they would not fly over to us and bite us. So if we could give them a diet drug where they would lose their appetite for people, you would be able to interrupt the chain of transmission. We had a paper we published a couple of years ago, Laura Duval, who's now at Columbia, came up with these drugs that actually act on the same appetite pathways that humans have. So if you have a big meal, you'll have a hormone that circulates that will tell you you are satiated and you won't eat. And so there's a very similar pathway in mosquitoes that if we fiddle with that pathway, they feel satiated and they won't eat. And so we're currently working with a local venture fund called the Tri-Institutional Therapeutic Discovery Institute and some chemists at Takeda to make new and better mosquito diet drugs. One thing that's really incredible about mosquitoes is how they can evolve against things like insecticides. So do you think that these would be less difficult to evolve against or would you still come across the same problems with a small resistant population now being able to take over? So the question of resistance is key when it comes to any vector control. We already discussed insecticides. So most insecticides that were very effective in 1950 are useless now. Because death is an incredible selection pressure, right? Bed nets, for the same reason, have become more complicated to use because they were highly effective at reducing the malaria rate from a million a year to about a half a million a year. People would sleep under them in malaria endemic areas. All the mosquitoes who came to bite at night would be out of luck because they're like, oh my God, we found a whole house full of people and babies. Like, this is great buffet. But then they would hit the bed net and they would not be able to bite them. So they laid fewer eggs and they were selected against. And then the random mosquitoes that were kind of, they were like early bird mosquitoes who happened to be biting during the day, they took over, right? So now 
mosquitoes are biting during the day. So that's making mm. bed nets much less effective. Oh, Scary, that's really right? interesting. I didn't know that it's like this flexion is on their circadian rhythms. That's right. Oh, wow. Okay. That's right. So will our psychedelic science fiction ideas encounter resistance? We are less likely to have these issues because our things are not going to work all that well. The key is not to have death as selection pressure, death or complete infertility, right? So the diet drug wears off after a couple of days. So because it has a light touch, we believe that we're not going to get resistance there. And then on the kind of psychedelic science fiction, like pill you would take every day to make your blood taste bad again, you're not killing them. You're just making them not bite you. They'll probably, they'll bite your neighbor who didn't take the pill. So it's kind of, as long as we have like kind of weak, if we have weak enough compliance and it kind of works, we don't need it to be perfect, right? And you could make a mathematical model that would say, you don't need to kill all the mosquitoes or prevent all of the blood meals. You just need to basically do the kinds of things we're doing with COVID, which is like, if you interrupt the transmission enough, you bring it down below a certain level, then you've solved the problem. It's such a different way of thinking about drug efficacy or intervention efficacy, because normally you want something that works, you know, perfectly 100% of the time and that, you know, has this great success rate. We don't actually need this to be, you know, a perfect drug, a perfect solution. We just need to break that cycle a little bit to put in an additional barrier and that could really decrease the disease burden. So thinking outside of vector control issues, what other kind of understandings about, you know, how mosquitoes and insects more broadly perceive and process sensory stimuli? You know, why is this important? What other opportunities does this kind of work present? So as we discussed, there's no immediate practical application of male mosquitoes that are attracted to people. That would be a very annoying technology to release because then we'd be twice as likely to be annoyed, although the males wouldn't bite you. So where the work actually has direct utility is that it will tell us more about why and how females are attracted to humans. So I think if we understand what's happening in the tiny brains of those fruitless mutant males, we'll be able to pinpoint what's happening in females that were born to be female to hunt people. So I think it will be, the female brain is a big place. That attraction to humans could be happening anywhere. We're so lucky that what's happening in the fruitless mutant males is really selectively about the smell of a human. So if we do like a compare and contrast, like female brain, male brain, fruitless mutant brain, the similarities should be like, whatever is similar between the female and the fruitless male should immediately tell us where is the smell happening. And that will drastically accelerate our ability to understand how humans are attracted to people. And that's where you get the more practical things, because we don't really understand what it is in detail about humans that makes us attractive. But if we knew a little bit of something about, could we give you a probiotic cream that would make you smell different? That would alter your smell enough that the mosquito would think like, oh, you're just a tree. Yeah. I think it's important to think of this in terms of like this work not being like the end-all be-all answer, but it's now created a new tool which you can use to further study and understand the biology of the female mosquitoes. Leslie, thank you for joining me on Journal Club today. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And that's it for Journal Club this week. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.